0: Imagine some of the most heated rivalries of all time. Many of us think of sports rivalries. You might think of the University of Alabama and the University of Auburn. I know you're surprised it's not Tennessee here. But the heatedness of the rivalry between Alabama and Auburn was so heated that one fan said he had too much Bama in him. And he went and took a poison, and took it and placed it at the base of two large oak trees on the University of Auburn campus. He said there was too much Bama in him to watch Auburn roll these trees in victory, so he poisoned them. Now justice has prevailed, but you see how rivalries get heated, how they stir a passion. Think about a a rivalry more closer to home. You who are Cubs fans in a land of Cardinals fans. There is hate. There is a a despising of one another, or maybe even uh, a more practical of how Southern Illinoisans think of Northern Illinoisans. Keep in mind, your pastor's wife is from Northern Illinois. I have no dog in the fight. I am a true Southerner from the state of Tennessee. But rivalries develop. They develop over all sorts of things and create tension. Tension that can get carried away. For example, and we, we saw that of the University of Alabama and University of Auburn as a student manager working for the university of tennessee when we would travel to gainesville florida to play the florida gators their fans hated us so much as we were on the field during warm-ups it was not uncommon as field goal kickers were were practicing and kicking those balls into the stands pre-game for the fans to wait until a staff member who did not have a helmet and launch the balls at the back of our heads we had to stay vigilant and alert or one of us was going to get knocked out. Rivalry develops. But as, as vicious as these rivalries are, as tense as they are, there's a rivalry that we're going to look at this morning that may succeed them all. A rivalry between that of Jews and Gentiles. And a rivalry that Jesus himself put an end to. That's what we're going to see as we open up God's word in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 11 through 22 this morning. So if you have your Bible, I invite you to go ahead and turn there. Uh, while, while you're turning there, just to kind of give us a running start. We've we've seen over the last several weeks of uh, uh, the book of Ephesians, how Paul has wrote that the people in Christ are blessed by God in every spiritual blessing. That they are a people being Built together for his kingdom. And that's the kingdom that we want to pursue advancing this morning. Because reconciliation has been made between God and us. That's primarily what we saw last week in Ephesians 2, 1 through 10. But this morning, this, this is further amplified and even showing more a different reconciliation. That between Jews and Gentiles in Christ. So hear the word of the Lord this morning from Ephesians 2 verses 11 through 22. Therefore remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the unc- the circumcision which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ alienated from the commonwealth of Israel So making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him, we both have access in one spirit to the father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. This is the word of the Lord. Ephesians 2, 11 through 22 is a powerful text. A powerful text in God's sovereignty that comes on the Sunday before Independence Day in this nation and it's God's sovereignty because it points us to a greater unifying object not us being Americans but us being Christians so here what I think is the main idea then here of Ephesians 2 11 through 22 and Lord willing the main idea of this sermon both those who who were near and far from the promises of God have now been brought near through the one man Jesus Christ who has now established a new people the church let me repeat that and it's on the screen both those who were near and far from the promises of God have now been brought near through the one man Jesus Christ who has now established a new people the church we're going to unfold this in three points that flow from this point number one remember the division that was remember the division that was point number two remember that christ is our peace remember that christ is our peace and point number three remember our new status in christ remember Our new status in Christ point number one remember the division that was notice how verse 11 starts there therefore remember therefore remember the Ephesian church has just been told that it was by grace that has saved them that they were dead in their sins and trespasses but now have been made alive in Christ by God's grace. This looked at, at Christians, both Jew and Gentile. But now Paul comes back and makes it very clearly. He's specifically talking to the Gentile believers in Ephesus. The church of Ephesus was mainly that of Gentile background believers. Meaning that they were not Jew. They had that, did not have a Jewish descent. And they're told this there in 11 and 12. Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. They were told to remember this and it's emphasized twice in the translation emphasized so that we may remember that we were separated as Gentiles my guess is all of us in here are of Gentile backgrounds not Jewish so this particularly speaks to us as Americans as Egyptians as pakistanis as indians as native americans we are gentile not jewish so this is the majority of human history is gentile and we were separated particularly as paul writes here to this church that reminding them that they were separated they at one time were separated from christ alienated from the commonwealth they did not have access to that of what was promised the jews they were a people without hope. And the sign of this that separated and made this distinction was that of circumcision. Males eight days old, were called to remove the foreskin of their flesh to make this covenant seal and symbol that they were set apart as God's people. This is all under the old covenant. So this was the sign that they were given and And this sign was a reminder to the Gentiles. You are separated. The covenant promise is not yours. It's for the Jews. For the Jews alone. So they thought. But the reality is. This is where they were. This is where they stood separated. And they were without hope says they were alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope. All the hope of a people being blessed by God, all the promises that God had made to the nation of Israel, the Gentiles were without. These promises did not belong to. They were not entitled to it. They had no rights to it. Therefore, they had no hope to look forward to the promises being fulfilled. This is who they were. But an even more daunting statement is made. Not only did they not have hope, it says they were without God in the world. Now, this is a striking statement. The church, or the the people of Ephesus, those of Gentile belief, they were not purely atheistic. Meaning that they thought there were gods. In fact, the people of Ephesus before Christ would have thought there were plurality of gods. One main would have been the goddess Artemis, who they would have worshipped in her temple. They would have given sacrifices to and devoted time and wealth to. So they were not without a god. But notice what Paul is saying. Even in their worship, of these so-called gods and goddesses, they're acting as atheists because they do not believe in the one true God, the God who created the heavens and the earth. They fail to worship the one right God, the only God who actually exists. So therefore, they are atheistic in function. Friends, there is no worshiping and thinking of a God apart from worshiping the right God. People can call themselves religious people and even say to believe in a God, but what God? Is it the one true and living God, the God of the Bible? Otherwise, they're functional atheists. They don't believe in the one true God who created the heavens and the earth. Make that clear. this is is what they're called to remember all of these things that they were atheists without God that they were without hope that they were alienated all of this is what they're being called to remember but why why is it these Ephesian Gentile background believers are called to remember this verse 13 but now in Christ Jesus, you who were far off had been brought near by the blood of Christ. These Ephesian believers, especially of Gentile background believers, were reminded what got you in was not your efforts. It wasn't because Israel simply failed and now you're in. It was by the blood of Christ and Christ alone that brought them near. It was by the grace of God that brought them near. Therefore, they should be a people who are humble. They have no room to boast over their Israelite brethren. Because they were brought near by Christ. It was his shed blood that allowed them to enter in. The gospel humbles a people. It causes us to see that our only hope is that of Christ. It's kind of nice to be in a mixed, not all American background. Because one, at least, will understand this a little bit more. The beauty of the Christian church is not that America has become the new Israel. That's where our pride comes in. We think somehow America is the new Israel with all the promises. It is not. All these promises were given to the Jewish people and have now included all of us from different nations and backgrounds by the shed blood of Jesus. By His blood, He has invited the nations to come in. Those of Pakistan, Iraqi, Iranian, North Korea, Russia, Ukraine, Uganda, Chile, Libya, Egypt, Morocco, Tanzania, and so forth. All of these, by the blood of Christ, are being called near if they will place their faith in Jesus and believe in Him. It is this we need to remember that it is by the blood of Christ we are drawn near. The great Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones writes in his commentary on this verse, he says, there is only one way whereby Christ can bring me nigh unto God, and that is by his blood, by his death, by his broken body, by his shed blood, by his life poured out. It is by faith in this truth that we hold our hopes, and therefore this should humble us. It should cause us to be all the more humble and thankful and turn us to a true and right worship by remembering what we were. And the only way we are brought near is by the blood of Jesus on that cross. He has brought us near. He has extended the promises of God to us. He has brought hope to us who had no hope. He has pointed us to the true God so that we may have God in being reconciled to him through the blood of Jesus. Friends, Ephesians 2:11 through 13 should humble us greatly and calls us to swell in a sense of true worship to God as we remember. Let us therefore go remembering what we once were and the fact that God has drawn us near if we were united to Jesus by faith. He has drawn us near And therefore, let us praise and exalt him in great humility and praise. Because it is Christ who has brought us peace. It is Christ who has brought us peace with God and with one another. And that's where we turn in our second point this morning. Remember that Christ is our peace. Verse 14. For he himself is our peace. Who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. In the temple, there was a wall that would have separated the Gentile people from the Jews entering into the temple. On this outside of this wall, the Gentiles could gather. This was the same place that Jesus himself would have driven out the money changers, turned over their tables and driven out all the animals. This is what infuriated Jesus because instead of this being a place that the Gentiles could come near and worship God, it was being corrupted and the Jews were furthering, making this distinction between them and the Gentiles saying, alright, your area is now for us to make finance full we'll gain on. We're we're going to keep you from actually gathering here in this place to worship so that we can make a profit here off of you and off of others. So this wall divided them. It was a wall, as Paul writes, a wall of hostility. But guess what? This wall that separated Jews and Gentiles, that kept them alienated as they came to the temple, Jesus brings down He makes peace between the Jews and the Gentile. He brings this wall of hostility down faster than that of uh, George Foreman knocking out Joe Frazier in the first round of the 1973 boxing match. Down goes Frazier. Instead of saying down goes Frazier, the wall has come tumbling down that divided the Jews and the Gentiles. It is down. Is more shocking of a call than even that of young rookie George Foreman knocking Joe Frazier down. Friends, do we see the peace that Jesus brings? A peace that brings those who were previous rivals and divided. He makes peace. How? Verse 15. By abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace. Now, we need to unfold this a little bit because the temptation here is to think somehow the Bible is contradicting itself. Wait, didn't Jesus say he didn't come to abolish the law and the prophets, but to fulfill And now Paul's writing here, Jesus abolished them? What's going on here is, is where we're tempted to think. But friend, let me reassure you, the Bible never contradicts the Bible. When we are wrestling with something, we should never turn one verse against another or another passage against another. They don't do that. They don't contradict one another. There's means of fulfillment of old passages and how they're fulfilled in Christ, this being one. There's prophecy of what will come and it's, it's kind of blurring it up so we can't quite see how it exactly will unfold. But Scripture never contradicts Scripture. In fact, Scripture should be used to interpret Scripture, to make sense of Scripture. So when we see here what Paul writes here in Ephesians 2 15 by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances we need to go back and understand what Jesus himself was saying there in Matthew 5 17 it says do not think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets I have not come to abolish them but to fulfill them Jesus did come to fulfill the law but again context helps because we understand what comes in 520, helps us understand what specific part of the law he was talking about. Jesus adds there in 520, says, For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. As Jesus was talking here in the Sermon on the Mount, he was talking about the great moral law. The moral law he did not abolish, he fulfilled. He fulfilled every aspect, every dot and tittle and Yoda and subscript of that law. He fulfilled it all. And it still stands. That If we were to try and achieve our own way to heaven, we have to meet that law and its perfection or we can look to Christ who fulfilled it. That law still stands. The law that Paul here is saying Jesus came to abolish is that of ceremony law, that of tradition law, of circumcision, the very things that would have distinguished Jews and Gentiles. Circumcision is no longer needed to gain God's favor. The ceremony of circumcision is not needed. The sacrificial walls are no more that would have separated the Jews and the Gentiles. The wall itself is come, brought tumbling down. Jesus has done away with this. He is abolishing all of those ceremonial laws and Jewish laws for the sake of bringing the two together. There is no more two people. He's working to bring them to one. That's what it means when it says by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two. So making peace. Jesus has come to make peace between these once rivals of Jews and Gentiles to make them one people. To make them one. But notice what it is that holds them together and might there verse 16 and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross thereby killing the hostility on the cross as Jesus died he brings the two together he kills the hostility as he himself gives up his life Showing that Jew could not save themselves, showing that Gentile could not save themselves, but only through the blood of Christ is salvation one. This Jesus then unites a people to Himself to become one people in Him. Friends, do we grasp the significance of this? Peace is, no, is had and gained by the blood of Christ. Peace with God? Notice what it says here. He might reconcile us both to God. And then drop down to verse 17. And he came and preached peace to to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. And then verse 18. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. It is through the one man, Jesus Christ, that reconciliation to God is had. By his grace, as Paul has already labored in the first 10 verses of chapter 2. But more importantly, not only has he reconciled us to God, but to one another. A ministry of reconciliation is given to us for people to be brought together in Jesus. Jesus is our peace with one another. The world's looking for peace. It's looking for peace in all sorts of places. But do you realize that peace comes only through Jesus Christ? Peace in the world, peace with one another, only comes through Jesus Christ. Friend, if you're looking for peace right now and you are not a believer, just just hear me. You're going to keep searching You're going to keep searching for peace and turn over every rock you can and look and cranny look and yet you will not find true peace because it's only had in Jesus. So unless you turn and repent and believe, you're going to keep searching for that peace and wonder aimlessly. Come to faith in Jesus and believe in Him alone. Because he alone brings peace. He is our peace. The Christian. See that Jesus is our peace. He has brought us near. To one another. To be united. And make peace between us. And that's where we need to turn. In our third and final point this morning. Remember our new status. In Christ. Now just fair warning. This is. Probably the longer of the three points this morning versus normally my first point. But I think it's significant for us to camp here for a few minutes. We need to remember first and foremost what we were. We need to remember that Christ is our peace. But now we need to remember our new status in Christ and how we live together as one people. We need to remember this new status and what it is that we're being called to unite us and how we're to interact with one another as Christians. Notice what it says in verse 19. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. We see here two new descriptions of our new status in Christ. Citizens with one another and part of the household of God together. Let's look at this idea of citizenship first. Do we realize that in in Christ that we are being created as one new man to be citizens of the same kingdom? Of the same kingdom. Therefore, in Christ, there is no American Christian. There is no Gentile or uh, Indian Christian. There is no Egyptian Christian. There is no Pakistani Christian. There is one citizenship. We are all members of the same kingdom, of Christ's kingdom together. Citizens with one another. It's like saying for some of you, as I was quickly reminded early in my pastorate here, that saying that we are Centralia and Central City are very different things. We're not citizens of both. We're citizens of one or the other. I was pointed out that by, by one member. And I'm guessing some of you can probably figure out who. I know one did. They're different. But in Christ, in Christ, we're brought to be citizens of the same kingdom. Again, we're thankful for, as Americans, we're thankful for the freedoms we have. We're thankful for the nation in which we belong to. But brothers and sisters in Christ, our first citizenship, our primary citizenship is not America as Christians. It's the kingdom of God, His kingdom. And we, therefore, as citizens of the same nation, sure, more in common with citizens in different nations that are Christians than we do with our fellow American citizens. As you gather with friends and family on Tuesday to celebrate the 4th of July, you're going to think, I have a lot in common with these people. We're all Americans. That is true. But you have something greater in your fellow citizens of heaven. You share in the same hope. You're under the same blood. You're going to the same kingdom that lasts. As one dear brother shared this morning from another brother of ours that was a mentor to both of us in various ways, America is simply an experiment as a nation. But before America existed, I'm paraphrasing, so please forgive me, but before America and long after America was Christ's kingdom. That's the kingdom we're citizens of together. Let's strive for that. Let's remember that our primary citizenship is one of the kingdom of heaven, of God's kingdom. But not only that, it says that we're also members of the household of God. We're part of the family of God together. Do you ever wonder why I probably overuse the phrase brothers and sisters? Here's why. I use brothers and sisters like crazy because it's language that should describe our relationship as Christians to one another. We're part of the same familia. We're part of the same household, the family of God. If we are in Christ, if we are united to Jesus by faith, we are to be part of the same family of God. This means Jews and Gentiles are part of the same family of God. They have one Father, God our Father. And they are adopted because of the one Son, Jesus Christ. They are adopted and brought in the same way. These are now no longer of different households, of different tribes, but brought in to be one family together. Brothers and sisters, imagine, and maybe even lament, mourn, the loss of this idea of family in the local church. We have lost a sense of what true family is. If you look at your biological families, you have great-grandparents, grandparents, parents, children, great-grandchildren, and so forth. Some you are lucky to, to see up into great-great-grandchildren. The family covers multiple generations. Those relationships are divided. Some of you husbands and wives don't even have the same interest and hobbies. But but that doesn't mean you stop being family. Think about how the church has divided itself of age and interest and lifestyle. The household of God, the local church, is never meant to be divided in these ways. It's to be a family that labors together, that labors to strengthen one another. You know, as the oldest brother of two, it it was my duty, it was my God-given duty I felt as a kid. I could pick on little brother. I could pick on him, I could bully him, I could put him in his place. But anybody else, uh uh-uh. You want to see, see me get mad and throw a fist? It's going to be the moment somebody says something to my little brother. And trust me, I did it a time or two. What if the church acted like this as a family? Instead of allowing one another to gossip and slander each other as the family of God, that we instantly said, uh-uh, no sir, no ma'am, and guarded one another. What if we actually labored for each other's good? To strengthen one another. To build one another up. When one member of the household flourishes, the whole household flourishes. What about the church? Is the whole church flourishing? Sadly, no. Therefore, let's cry out to God and weep and plead that He will make this change. Let us restore to this family relationship of God's household as brothers and sisters in Christ where we labor for one another's good where we care for one another where we stick up for one another where we're going to build one another up but the next part we need to see is not only are we family not only are we fellow citizens we're called to be built into a temple of God it's what we see beginning in verse 20 and, and through 22. Built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place of God for God by the Spirit. God is making peace for us in Christ. So that we can be built together as the temple Of God. The local church is where God's glory shines its brightest, where Christ's love is made clearest. There's a reason I love to talk about the local church, and it's for this reason. Because as members of a local church, we are being built together, joined together to carry out the one another's of Scripture together, to shine as a light in the midst of darkness in our communities. If we can't love one another within the church, how are we going to shine the love of Christ outside the church? See how this is built, though. One, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. The foundation of a true and healthy church is to be built on the foundation of the prophets and the apostles, primarily of their teaching of God's word. A true church must be built on the foundation of God's word. Or it will not stand, at least not for truth. As the early church was built, as the um, Pentecost happened there in Acts 2, as the numerous came, there at the end of Acts 2, it tells us that early on they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching daily. A true and right church, a healthy church, is centered and built on this word. This word alone is what must build the church. It must be the foundation, not programs, not community activities, but the word of God. That's why as Baptists, we got one thing right. In Baptist tradition, the pulpit stands in the center. Not to make the preacher the primary focus, but what the preacher is to do. Opening God's word and proclaiming it. This is what the church must be built upon, the foundation of God's word. But notice what next: Christ Jesus Himself being the corner stone. Christ Himself is that piece which holds the building together. If you look at the corning Corners of this sanctuary, you see cornerstones where it's built and the walls are held together securely. What holds Jews and Gentiles together? Jesus himself. The cornerstone of the church, the the center of our unity and being built together is Jesus. It's never interest. Think of how many churches get splitted over the fact of colored carpets. Stained glass windows, music, pews, or chairs. How many churches divide over that? Churches that focus on the wrong thing. The unity of the church must be Jesus. He must be what holds us together. Our hope in Him. Him as our King. Him as our first love. Brothers and sisters, let us be a church that is united in Jesus more than anything else. I don't care if we've got the same stage of life. We may have different tastes, different interests, and that's perfectly okay. What's not is when we're not centered on Jesus together and say, I have more in common with you because you were bought by the blood of Jesus just like I was. Brothers and sisters, let us be a people that is joined together by Jesus and Him alone. Let our love for Jesus hold us tighter than ever. He's the cornerstone. Let us be built upon Him. But notice what it continues to add. In whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. The whole church, both global church as well as local church, grows together. It grows together in Jesus. It's being joined together in Him. It's going into a holy temple in the Lord. The local church is a place where God's people are united because of this love in Jesus. They're to be built tightly together. If you've never done it or never seen it, you need to go home this afternoon. There's a a perfectly lovely thing called YouTube. Go open up YouTube and look up about strands of cords being tied and twisted together. Too many of our churches are one or two threads and then easily snap. But imagine if the cords of the church were actually interwoven into each other, built together so solidly you can't tear it apart with Jesus being the one to hold it. That's what we're being called to be built into, to be a holy temple of the Lord, where the Lord's presence is in our gathering. In him, you also, verse 22, in him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the spirit. The local church is a place where the people are being built together. That means each member doing their part Lucky for us, Paul's about to unfold this as Ephesians goes on. He's going to be talking about how we're all equipped for different purposes, but for the same task to grow in maturity and faith and to be unleashed for the work of ministry. The church is to be built together and then unleashed for the same purpose, using our various gifts and our tasks, each member doing their part. Church, imagine What we begin to look like if we begin to actually function this way. Can you say for the last 20, 30 years, Central City Baptist Church has been that kind of united people based on Jesus alone? Or has it been nothing but preferences? And I think you know the answers. We can either get this right. And begin to see that it is Jesus who must hold us together and us built in him to be built together, all laboring for the whole's good, not just our individual, but the whole's good. And only then will we thrive. Only then will we actually rightly remember who we were and what we were bought from and how peace has been made. Peace comes through Jesus. Therefore, we need to remember that. We need to remember who we are in Jesus. We're no longer separate members of our own households and own citizenship, but we are members together in the body of Christ as fellow citizens of the kingdom of God. We're no longer of different households, but of one family. Christian, will we remember this? Will we remember this and allow this to transform us into the new creation And begin to look more like Jesus a little every day. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank.